would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We will be uh, beginning in Ephesians 1. I understand John Tierney will be preaching on Ephesians 2, so if you see that uh, in your bulletin we're uh, reading from Ephesians 2, we're going to start in Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, if you're using the Black Pew Bible, in any event, both of these passages start on uh, page 976. So once again, we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his, of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the, all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, good morning. How are you all doing this morning? We're well, good, I'm glad to hear you well. Uh, we look, as he said, at chapter two today, but if, if, as long as you've got chapter one open, I'll just uh, preface this. Ephesians chapter 2 and really chapter 1, what Paul's talking about, big picture, is unity in the church, unity between believers. 
But you will see as we get into this that he will use the words we and you or I and they or whatever a lot. And when he does, he has a specific idea in mind. And it, I was going to say this later, but when Bill was reading, um, if you go to uh, verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul says this. He's talking about what we have through Christ. He says, in him we have an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So then he says this, he says, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And, he, and then he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, in verse 12, when he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ, he is talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jews, all right? And that theme kind of runs throughout what we're going to look at. If you remember, the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So, if you're here today and you don't have Jewish blood running through your veins, you are a Gentile, all right? So, we are all Gentiles as far as I know. Then he says after that, to, um, to the praise of his glory, in verse 13... Then he talks about us. He says, in him you also. Okay, so that's the first time he's going to strike this, this difference between us and them. Ultimately, what he's going to talk about is breaking down that barrier. Not just between Jew and Gentile, but between all of us. But I, as Bill was reading, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to grab that right there and, and get into it. So, that's the first thing that we want to, you know, talk about, right? Now, the second thing is... Um, when we, like I said, when we look at this, unity of the church is, is what matters. Um, one of the things that helps unity a lot is if you turn off your phone during the, the uh, sermon. So if your phone is on, this is your time to turn it off. All right? I just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay. All right. If you could be anything other than a human, anything in the world, there are a lot of things you could choose from. If you could be anything but a human, what might you be? I've always thought mountain lions are pretty cool, but I don't think I'd want to be one. I'd have to get used to disemboweling little woodland creatures, and I don't know if I could do that or not. But if you could do anything, if you could be anything, what would it be? Like I said, I'm very happy being a human, but there's one thing as I thought this through, which is kind of scary that I thought it through, but one thing you wouldn't want to be is a chicken. And I don't mean a scaredy cat chicken. I mean like a Chick-fil-A chicken or a Kentucky Fried Chicken chicken, right? Because things don't go well for chickens. And I look this up every year in the world. 50 billion chickens make the ultimate sacrifice. It's just not good to be a chicken. So you got to figure, if a chicken knew what was going to happen, he would, you would do something about it, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you be flapping or something? You don't know. Maybe you clear that fence and things will change. But the fact is, a chicken doesn't have a brain that tells him that. And as far as chickens or any other animal, all they know is what their brain tells them. All they know is what is in front of them and this world in which they live. And that's really all they know. And believe it or not, if you look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, the first three verses 
describe people who really aren't that different. They don't have any concept of anything other than what their body tells them to do. That's not good. And that's why verse 1 starts off with, and you were dead. And if, you know, if you just saw this sentence like standing on its own, like on the screen, you might think, well, that's not a very pleasant thought. But Paul's just talking history when he talks about this, all right? Because he's talking to the Ephesians, but he's talking to us. And so as I looked at this, I thought, you know, you could walk up to this phrase. You could take it, analyze it in different ways, and I think you'd be right on three different ways to do it. You could say to a person, not reading it, but if you were talking to someone about what Ephesians said, you could walk up to them and you could hold out your Bible and you could say, look, it says you were dead. And your point obvious would, obviously would be, look, he's talking to you, all right? God's talking through Paul to you that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And I think if you did that, you would be right. All right, take the same phrase, flip the coin. You could also say, you were dead. And, and depending on who you're talking to and what their issue was at the time, you might say, you're saying to them, you can't earn your way to heaven. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were dead to God, and you need a Savior. And in both those instances, like I said, I think you'd be right in your, your you know, emphasis. But as I looked at it, in context of chapter 1 and what we're going to look at today, chapter 2, so it kind of sits here in the middle, I think the best way to look at this is, and I, I thought about this, if Paul were speaking to us, I think at this point he would step forward to his audience and he would say, and oh, by the way, you were dead. Because all of chapter 1 talks about these blessings you have and how wonderful God has been to us. I mean, if you read it, it's just incredible. If you take this home and meditate on chapter 1, it's amazing what God has done and what God continues to do. So Paul stops, he says, but you were dead. And he wants us to get that point. All right? Now, having said that, you guys stay with me here. We're going to do some Bible work, all right? I think where we jumped in here, Paul is in the middle of making a point. All right? So what I want you to do is keep in mind... Go back to chapter, or chapter, go back to verse 16, chapter 1, okay? And Paul says, I'm, I have this prayer that I'm praying for you, right? And then he says, I'm praying this prayer, and verse 17 says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and then he names three things, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his, God's, power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Now, I want to stop there for just a minute. This point, especially for what we're studying, is very important, all right? But I'll just be honest with you. When I looked at that last phrase... I had a hard time really understanding completely what it meant with this wording. Um, what was he saying? So I spent a lot of time looking into this. And so I think what Paul is saying here is this. If, if we start of what is the immeasurable greatness. I think what Paul is saying is, look, I really, really, really want you to know. Deep in your heart, I want you to know that the power of God 
the incomprehensible, unlimited, everlasting, immeasurably great power of Almighty, eternal, infinite God has been given in its entirety to you. That you have the power of God at your disposal. I think that's what he's saying there. He's saying it's been given to those of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I want you to know it. I want you to get the fact of it to saturate your life. I want the knowledge, the deep, deep, deep knowledge of that to be a part of your being. That God's power is yours. That it belongs to you because God has given it to you. I think that's what Paul's trying to say here. And then he wants to know about that power. Okay? So this, if you got it there, is a picture of Mount Everest, I'm hoping. And this picture was taken by my buddy Herb Windhorse when he's flying to Alaska for vacation, right out the window of his plane. And I've always just liked this picture of Mount Everest. So what we just talked about, the power that we have, that, that what hit me was when, when Paul the Apostle says in verse 16 that he wants the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, Watch what he does here. Go to your Bibles in, in, in chapter 1 still and see what he does, right? It's like he takes us to the bottom of this huge, magnificent, snow-covered mountain that's lit up by the sun. It's glowing. And he's taken to this, the bottom of this mountain, okay? And he starts at the base. And he takes the eyes of our hearts and he starts going up and up and up and up. And he just keeps going as this big picture unfolds, right? This magnificent mountain is what he's... That's the picture he's painting, right? So watch this. He shows us this picture, and here's what he says. He says that God put that power on display when, go to your Bibles, he says, He, God the Father, raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And this launches up here. He goes, far above, above all rule and above all authority and above all power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come when Jesus comes back. Jesus is above all those things. And in verse 22, he keeps going. He says, he put, God put Jesus above all things. And he put all things under his feet. And he, put, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So he just takes Jesus from the grave. And when, he, when Jesus was raised from the grave, he didn't just raise him from the grave to life. He took him all the way up. All right, to this magnificent peak. Do you understand that? Do you see what God has done? His power did that, and you have that power. All right, so as we move on, I, I want to point some things out. We live in a world that has these um, dimensions, realms, spheres of, of whatever. We say, well, this is my world. You know, my world is my family and my job and church and whatever. That's your world, okay? The Bible says that there's a spiritual world, all right? God is a spirit. God is a spirit who must be worshipped in spirit and truth. Paul talks in our text about the heavenly places. All right, that's a realm, a spiritual realm. We also, uh, within the spiritual realm, there's the world of demons. Satan is in that realm. The angels are part of the spiritual realm. And in one sense, Christians are in that realm. But we're also in the physical world, right? There's living things in the physical world, inanimate objects, uh, mountain lions, whatever, uh, rocks, dirt, water, all those things. They're all in this physical world. The physical world has our emotions, our thoughts, the things that we think about, things you can't see, radio waves, TV waves, all these different things are in this physical world, all right? The wind, it's all part of this world that we live in. Two other things, 
that are in this world are life and death. Very prevalent. A lot of people in our congregation are dealing with deaths in their families, friends. That's part of the world that we live in. That's a realm in which we live in, okay? But all these things make up our world, okay? So, my point is this. God's creation is just, I was going to say massive. It's way beyond massive. It's beyond anything that we can really comprehend, all right? And so when God raised Jesus from the dead, he, he sliced through all of that, all right? And, and everything that you can think of, anything you can think of, the resurrection of Jesus, God put him above all of it, every bit of it. He's over it. He's in control of it. And that power that he used to do that is ours. Okay, so I think we've gone far enough with that. I think you get it. I hope you do. So, with that being the case, and we're up there on that mountain, Paul stops and Paul says, but don't forget, you were dead. Don't forget that. So with that in mind, we're going to shift gears again. All right, you've got the first half of Paul's point that I think he's making. We're going to go back and we'll look at all of verses 1 to 3. And the passage says this, And you were dead in your trespasses, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Fine. But then he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, we just talked about these spheres, these um, realms or whatever. So when Paul says, when you look at the screen, it's Paul says, you were dead in, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's saying, you were, you were dead in that world. All right? You're the chicken walking around with no clue. You were sinning, and that was your whole life. That was everything. Okay? Um, whatever the world said was good... We agreed before we were saved. We went right along with it. Some of us thought we were a little cleaner than everybody else, but it didn't matter. Okay? We were, we were sheep in the wrong pasture. Our shepherd was the prince of the power of the air, who was Satan. And we grazed on sin, and we loved every minute of it. That's all we knew, and we liked it before we were saved. All right? When Paul says we lived in the passions of our flesh, he means that that was our world. Okay, we did what our minds and our bodies told us to do because the course of the world said, baby, if it feels good, you do it, right? It's on TV, it's on the internet, it's on the radio, it's everywhere you go. It's just always there. You're number one. It's all about you. Do what you want because you're the guy. You're the girl. It's all about you, all right? The sad thing is, if you're an unsaved person, there's some degree of truth to that, right? There was a beer commercial on years ago that said, um, you know, the guys were sitting around a fire or wherever they're sitting around, and, and they've all got their beer, and one of the actors in every commercial said, guys, it doesn't get any better than this. Remember that? There's a degree of truth to that because it doesn't get any better. Now, the point is, this is great, but our point is, no, it's not, because you have no eternity you are hopelessly lost. But they don't know any better. And neither did we. Some of you were saved at a very young age. I wasn't. 
I remember. I remember that I was my own guide. I knew God, he was my consultant. And I'd, I'd consult God on things, but you know what? I was the boss. I was the Lord of my life. A lot of you know that. And you've been through things that still hurt you. I've got things that I hear people say now, and it just cuts me like a knife because that was me before God saved me. It's really hard. But he did it. He saved me. But those people, they don't know, okay? Again, when these children are of wrath, when life ends for them, all that remains is judgment. And Paul says that's who we are. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, again, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we were dead. We were like the rest of mankind is. And that's pretty sobering. Verse 4. But God, right? Those might be the two best words in the Bible. But God. So for the most part, chapter 1 was just this big waterfall of blessing that pours down on the Christian, okay? And, and that should in turn, by the way, lead us to rain down praise on God for what he's done, okay? In fact, if you go home and you look at chapter 1, you'll see the praise of his glory, the praise of his glory of his name. That's where this should end up, okay? But... Having said all that, he took us there through all these glorious things. And remember, he's making a point, and I think we're in the middle of this point, right? And then he stopped, and he said, but you were dead. And he took us to this place where we had to look at who we were before Christ, all right? But we needed to do that. We needed to do that, or God wouldn't have done it. And it sure makes you appreciate this next passage, which says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that is God. That is who he is, and that's what he has done for us. Even when we were dead. But I, I want to show you something now. Here's this point that he was making, all right? So we've got half of it down anyway. And I think everything from verse 21 of chapter 1, if you're looking at your Bible... Through the first part of verse 5 in chapter 2, that was Paul driving home a point, emphasizing the magnitude of the point he's making, right? He could have just told us up front, but he said, no. God says, you've got to see this to get the point, all right? I think that's what it's there for. But his point begins in verse 17, and like I said, it goes all the way through verse 20, and then it picks up again halfway through verse 5 of chapter 2. So you have this. This is what it would say. You get that next side, Nick. 17 starts, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, and then you pick up at verse 5, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at right, the right hand in the heavenly places. I think I got ahead of myself. Don't worry about it. Stay where you are, all right? We'll make this point. Then, with that up there, if you'll permit me for the sake of clarity to add the words and God right after that, 
This is, we put the whole thing together now. He says, and God raised us up with him. So he's gone through this whole thing that God did when Jesus was resurrected. And then he says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see how it connects? He's talking about Jesus and his resurrection. He's talking about this power and he's talking about what it did. He, we're right there. That is astounding to me. That I went from being dead in my sin and loving every minute of it to being seated at the right hand of God with Jesus Christ. Do we know, do you know what that is? Do you know what God has done for you? I mean, do you ever think about it? That is incredible. There are theologies out there that say God saved you and set you on your way. And, and to some extent, if God saved you from hell, saved me from hell, and said, I done it, it's over, see ya. I'm, I'm glad I'm not going to hell, but no, that's not who God is. God blesses us and blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses us, okay? But I, I have to say, if we don't walk through the first three, three verses there, this doesn't get to the height that God intended, all right? If we move ahead, verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Now I know that I'm probably, you'll think I'm committing heresy, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about God's grace today. Um, we always stop. It's a good thing. God's grace is amazing. Absolutely. And God's grace is in the text for a reason. But well, for the bigger picture and what we're talking about, division, I just didn't want to spend a lot of time, but I didn't want to get run out of town either. So I wanted to at least acknowledge that, yes, God's grace is amazing, and it's in the text, and we'll acknowledge it. But what he says, if you look at verse 8, he says, by grace, you have what? You have been saved. So I think the point here is that you have been saved. It connects with everything else, all right? Through faith, not of your own doing. And then he says, it is the gift of God. And there's differences of opinion on what that means, as he's saying that, that faith was a gift, was grace a gift. Uh, I think if it's an either or, as far as um, you can say that grace was a gift, I don't, we're not born with faith, okay, that's the point. If you wanna say the gift is all of salvation, that's fine, but look at what it says next, that no one should boast. You can't sit here and say I saved myself because no one saves themselves. Okay, that's the ultimate point. God saves us, sovereignty belongs to God, Salvation belongs to God, okay? So just keep that in mind. Like I said, I know usually we spend a lot of time right there. I used to have it taped to my computer, but I wanted to move ahead today. So if you look at verses 11 and 12, because we're saved, he says, therefore, now he's getting into this divisive part. He says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, born Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty bleak picture. But what's he saying? He's saying, I want you to remember. So he's doing the same thing he did at the beginning of the chapter. I want you to remember that at one time, and he talks about this uncircumcision and the circumcision. So the... the, the 
one of, I should say, the, the things about the, the Israelites was that they were circumcised. And so they, that was our mark. That told everybody that we were God's people. And, and they used the word uncircumcision as a derogatory term. Remember when Goliath came out to, and David saw him, he goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You know, it was, it was a derogatory term. So Paul's saying, yeah, I know you hear it, okay? You're called the uncircumcision by what they call the circumcision. And they think that they're God's people because of this thing that they do. And he says, no, it's not. It's made in the flesh by hands. But then he moves on. He says, remember, I want you to remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, which is chapter, verses 1 through 3. You were alienated, though, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. God did use Israel in the Old Testament. And if you wanted to be saved, you had to become a Jew. You had to get circumcised. You had to do all the rituals. And, you had, and, and the Jews themselves had to go to, to Jerusalem. All right? I mean, it was all about coming and being a part of Israel. And that's what he said. And you weren't. You were, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the, the, the covenants, the Abrahamic covenants, all these covenants that they had. You were strangers. You couldn't get there, right? That was part of the deal. And therefore, you had no hope. I, I was talking to somebody recently, and when I picture no hope, um, there was a story years ago about a guy, a sailor on an aircraft carrier, and, and as a USS America, and they were in, I think, the Adriatic Sea, and somehow or another, he got knocked overboard at night, and no one knew he was missing. And so there's this thing, I'm not a sailor, that they teach them that's called drown proofing, where you take your pants off and, and roll up the ends of them, and you make a, basically a balloon out of them, put it behind your head, okay? Um, I got some people nodding at me. So uh, that's drown proofing. And so he was doing that, but no one knows he's missing, and he's in the middle of an ocean. And he was hopeless. There's nothing he could do. He could do that for a period of time, but eventually he's going to die, right? I mean, he was hopeless. He, had, he needed someone to save him. The amazing thing about it was the uh, infamous Japanese fishing boat happened by and found the guy, and he was saved. It said his, his parents were home. They, they called off the search after like three days, and his parents were making arrangements for memorial service, and his dad picks up the phone and says, Hi, Dad, and there's his kid, right? But the fact is, he needed someone to save him. He could not save himself. But the one that always rings with me is Saul of Tarsus, all right? And he's on his way to Damascus. You know the story. He's on, his, on the road to Damascus. He's going to pick up all these Christians, and he's going to take them back to Jerusalem and do bad things to them. And what happens? He gets saved, right? But he sees the flash, and he's knocked down. And I've always pictured this, because I always try to, when I read the Bible, I think it's a good thing to do this. These are real people. This is real dirt they're walking on. These are real things around them. It's just not pie-in-the-sky stuff. And so Paul's walking. He's down on his hands and knees. And I always thought, when well, he probably sees a shadow. And he hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that nanosecond, he's like, what is going on? He goes, who are you, Lord? And in the next split second, he, hear, he hears, I am Jesus. And to me, at that point, he knows his theology. He knows who God is. And he knows what this sect is, this Christian sect. And he knows now that he's basically trying to kill God's church. And in that next split second, 
That's about as hopeless as you can get. I mean, he's thinking they're going to carve out a deep trench for me in hell because that's what I deserve. That is hopeless. That's as hopeless as I can imagine. Thankfully for him, God says, get up. All right? But we were hopeless, folks. We were hopeless before Jesus Christ. And that's the point that God is making. Move on now to verse 13. Maybe these are the second best words in the Bible. But now. But now in Christ. You who were once far off, and that's Gentiles, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who? The Jews and the Gentiles. He has made us one, and he has broken down in his flesh that was crucified, the wall, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That dividing wall of hostility, if you remember the temple, and, and they had the court of this and the court of that, the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could come close, but not any farther than this wall they had built. The wall of the Gentiles. And there were signs that said, any Gentile who passes this point, your blood is on your own hands. I mean, they've, they've excavated these little signs that were on there. Okay? The wall was there, and a Gentile could not pass and come near to God. So there was this wall, and he says, Christ broke that wall down in his flesh. All right? In his body, on that cross. It says he abolished the law of commandments. In other words, the Mosaic law is gone. It's grace, all right? We can come near. So why do you do it? So that he might create in himself one new man, and we need to get that. A Christian is a Christian is a Christian, okay? We, through the years, have sent out missionaries. We support missionaries. We're sending out more missionaries. If we, in our hearts, harbor any kind of prejudice or bias or whatever, against other Christians in other lands or whatever, or like we're more important or whatever it might be, that is wrong. That is a wall that we need to get away from. Conflict has always been in the church and it always will until Jesus comes back, but it shouldn't start with us. All right? This power of God that we have enables us to do things, and one of those things is to forgive. Someone's done you wrong. I can't do it. I can't forgive him. You can't? God says you can. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't... It, what? What? No. That's not how it works. All right? We don't, we don't go there. We are not the ones to bring this hostility. It can't start with us. It's so important to know that, okay? The next verse, verse 16. Jesus did all this that he might reconcile us both to God... First he reconciled us to each other, but to God in one body through the cross. And when I was studying this, I wrote down on my notes, it's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross. God sent his son, his only son, to die on that cross. And part of it was to accomplish this. And he's done it. And who are we to stand in the way? Thereby killing the hostility. 
You know what? I, I kept thinking of this too. Before the throne of God above, I, I, I asked Toby to, to, if we could sing that today. And I, and I picture this scene in heaven. I want you to do this with me. Picture the scene in heaven and you've died and you're in heaven. And thank God for it. And you're glorifying God. Are you really concerned about where the person next to you came from? Well, are they American? Or are they whatever? Really? No. None of that matters. None of that matters. Okay? Are we really going to carry division in our hearts? We can't do that. Listen to this from Revelation. You need not even turn here. From Revelation 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb, the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you really care where you came from? Does it really matter any of it? Do you really think you can't forgive somebody? Do you really think it needs to be your way? It doesn't. Whatever you have in your heart that you know could cause division or is causing division, in light of what Jesus has done, does it matter? But I like it this way. Well, I think we should do this. That's division. And if it's in your heart, that's bad as well. You don't have to say a word. It's still not what God wants. No division. Okay? Here's an illustration for you. And this, is, this really, really got my heart. Okay? From, from 1 Corinthians 11, this is what I'm going to read from, and, and you don't necessarily need to turn there. We read these verses when we do communion. When we have communion, we read these verses from 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to see the context from which they came, all right? When we start at verse 20, and I don't know if I have those up there or not, but listen. Paul says this to the Corinthians, and he's not happy with them. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What's happening? All right? They used to have something called a love feast. It was basically a pitch-in. And when they had the church service and they were going to have communion, they had these love feasts. But there was all these divisions in their culture too. All right? Rich and poor did not get along. You're poor, you're less than me, you're not as good as me. All right? Slaves and masters. All the things that you read that Paul talks about during the divisions that existed. Well, they were there and they were very prevalent. There was a problem. And so what happened was, and I'll get ahead of myself a little bit, what happened in those things that Paul heard about was there were people that showed up and they had nothing. They had been saved, welcomed into the church, but when they showed up for these love feasts, that was going to be their food. That was a meal, and they looked forward to it. And the rich who were in the way, who were up front or whatever, would take all the food. And, and, and so I've always had this picture in my head and I don't know if it's right or not, but I've always had this picture of, of the guy in line, and he's so happy that he's going to eat something. 
And as he's walking through the line, he sees people piling the food on. He thinks, there's nothing left for me. And when he gets up there, how embarrassed would you be? You know, if you're standing there with an and people are looking at you. And I always thought he goes out the side door and goes home. And does he ever come back? Who knows? Now, that's totally me in my head. But you get the point, and I don't think it's that far off. So you say, well, we don't do that. Okay, but when do you exclude people in the church? Because they're not like you or whatever. We can't do that either. All right, we are one. We are one, one, one. All right? God did that through the cross. So keep that in mind. So, um, got off the text here. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And he says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I think when he says for, the word for in verse 23, I think what he's saying is, I want you to know this. All right? I want you to know this and I want you to get it. That's not a literal translation by any means. It's just I think that he's making a point. All right? Why is he doing it? Because of what's going on. Because they're, they're not there to have communion. They're not there for the sake of God, to worship God. All right? And then he goes through and he talks to us about what happened. All right? So when you look here at what Jesus said and what he did in that upper room, that is so intimate. And that is our Savior preparing to go to the cross. You know, for you and for me. In, in verse 25, it says, In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us, Do you understand what's going on there? Do, do you get it? Do you understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross? In your heart, do you understand it enough that it changes your heart? Do, you, do your prejudices really matter in the light of what Jesus Christ did on the cross? Does it really matter? The thing that keeps popping in my head is Mexico. Let's be very honest with you. It's an extremely difficult, extremely complicated situation we face. We are ambassadors for Christ first. Years ago, there was a, there was a band called Audio Adrenaline, and they had a song called Jesus Movement. Now, this is before there were any issues at the border of our nations. And this guy went to Mexico on a missions trip, and the lyrics basically say, I got down and I found out that Jesus was doing just fine without Americans. And he said, I couldn't believe it. You know, I've had those thoughts before. We can't send that. We got to send out more missionaries because these, these people around the world, they can't do it without us. God's like, I got this, you know. But what is in your heart about it? Like I said, I understand it's extremely complex. It's very difficult. But the people who are saved in the world, they are our brothers and sisters. All right? So... I guess my point is if you harbor bitterness towards people from Mexico or whatever land, 
Why? Why? They're either lost, 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 or they're your brothers and sisters. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross here in this, in this chapter 11 of Corinthians. And I, just, I think Paul showed them this to say, really? Really? That should challenge all of our hearts. It really should. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So you take it seriously. All right? Now, I want to go back to Ephesians. I want to go back to verse 17, chapter 2. Paul says, and he came, Jesus, he came, and he preached peace to, the, to those of you who were far off, that's us, and peace to those who were near. So remember where we started. We started in Ephesians chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1, lost, totally gone, all right? Look where we're ending up here. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, and here we go, of the household of God. So you went from being all the way out there to God's living room. All right? And i got to be honest with you, I, I just couldn't escape this thought. When my wife and I got married, we went to um, Hawaii for our honeymoon, and you got to do a luau. you got to spend the 90 bucks for a luau, right? Because you're in Hawaii. So tightwad forks out the 90 bucks, and I'm a very cynical person, all right? And they're up there doing their you know, thing, and I'm like, whatever, you know. I, I remember going to uh, Beef and Boards to watch Fiddler on the Roof. If you've never been to Beef and Boards, it's this neat little theater. And I had seen Fiddler on the Roof before, and it's this guy whose daughters get married off. And his last daughter, they don't ask for permission, they ask for a blessing. You know, and so every time one of his daughters does something, he goes on one hand, but on the other hand, his name is Tefka, Tefka, whatever, anyway, he's like, on one hand. And so I'm watching this John Tierney cynical guy, like, whatever, you know. And so his last daughter is going to leave, and he says, on the one hand, on the other, he goes, there is no other hand. And I went, what? You can't do that. That's your daughter, you know. And I went, he got me. They got me. I got the story. Well, the same thing happened at the luau. I'm, I'm, I'm watching all this, and I'm like, whatever, you know. I don't know what this poi is, but I have to eat it. And, and they're up there doing, and the guys are banging on the drums. And they had this one girl they kind of featured, and... I don't remember that stuff. You know, I think what they did is they moved her over and they put her on this platform where the sun was going. They did it really well and the sun went down right behind her. And so I'm starting to go, yeah, this is an island and I'm in this tropical paradise and this is really cool. You know, like, yeah, the music and the tor tiki torches. And I'm getting into the whole thing. So they go on a little further and at some point we're sitting there and I'm, you know, and the whole bit. And out comes the girl from stage left wearing jeans and a t-shirt with a big gym bag. She's like 18 or something. And crystal shattered, okay? The whole illusion was gone. And I thought, she's going to go home. This is my thought, standing there watching her walk away. She's going to go home and fight with her brother for the remote. <laughs> that was exact, to this day, I remember going, she's going to go home. Carolyn, that guy, that girl's going to go home and fight with her brother. And, and they're going to get their mom and dad, and they're going to have to fight over the remote. <laughs> it's just been there forever. But you know what? That's home. Right? 
Now, there are more pleasant things, I get that, but that's home. Home is comfortable, and it's home in your heart, and you're happy there. And that has been on my mind the whole time, that you're home. And God says, you are now in the household of God. That's the best home there could be. And you know what? Some of you didn't grow up in a good home, and this hurts. And, and I, I'm sorry, and, and God bless you. I'm sorry for your pain that you feel. But look, look what God has done for you. Look what, if you're saved, you have. Okay? I know it's hard. I don't know how hard. All right? But you went from children of wrath to being adopted as sons and daughters, living in the household of God. Does it hurt? Let me tell you what's coming, if it hurts. This is from Revelation. The end of the Bible says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you're suffering, if you, if you look at this and it hurts you, and you want it, and you're saved, it's yours. Okay? This is what God has in store for us, okay? You can give your life to him if you're not saved. You can give your life to him and have this. You can give your life to him because he gave his life for you, okay? This is what you have, all right? Moving on, we're, we're, we're going to close here in a minute, okay? We finish out with verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. cornerstone. And look what God says this, okay? in whom the whole structure being joined together, all of us as one, okay, joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Remember all that talk about power? That power comes from God's Holy Spirit, and he's going to do this work. He's going to do this. But you can't hold these divisions in your heart. You can't do it. And you certainly can't live them. Where is your heart? You know what? God got on the Israelites all the time because they paid him lip service. And he said, but their hearts are far from me. Far from me. Where's your heart? I, I never intended this to be a nationalistic type message, okay? I hope it didn't come across that way. I'm just saying, where is your heart? What do, you, what do you feel for the lost? What do you feel when you see people who are suffering? You know what? We have this worldwide problem with refugees. It's always been that way. And until Jesus Christ comes back, there will always be refugees. I was talking to somebody a couple days ago about after World War II, how many, how many orphans there were in Europe. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of orphans. And they said they couldn't get them to sleep at night. Somebody gave an orphan a piece of bread when he went to bed, and he slept like a baby. And they started giving the orphans, all these orphans, a piece of bread because they knew when they woke up they'd have something to eat. It's always been this way, folks. And until Jesus fixes this, it will be. Where is your heart? Again, the thing is the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. Jesus knocked down everything for the sake of the cross and took us to be seated with him in the heavenly places. What a glorious God we have. Let's pray. God, I say these things and I know they're 